0: Welcome to the Proceedings podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. Thanks for joining us. With me is my usual co-host, Captain Bill Hamlet, the soon to be what? We're we're hours away from him assuming the reins as editor-in-chief of Proceedings magazine as we say farewell today to our good friend and mentor for the case of both of us, longtime editor-in-chief Fred Rainbow. Hey, Ward. Yeah. Hello. Uh, happy Wednesday. A sad Wednesday
1: here in Beach Hall. Uh, we we did, as a staff, say farewell to Fred today. Uh, we've got six midshipmen with us on uh, dash two of uh, the midshipman internship program. So they all had like two days with Fred Rainbow. So at some time in their future careers, they're going to realize that they were in the in the presence of greatness for yeah. about 48 hours before uh, Fred retired. But Um, Yeah, Fred, uh, we we said farewell to him today. Tomorrow he'll be in. We'll be uh, recording a podcast that we will uh, air next week uh, with Fred, 1001 Sea Stories, a little bit about uh, his 30-something years with uh, the Naval Institute and proceedings. And, uh, yeah, as many people have told me over the last week and a half or so, uh, I have, like, size 16 or bigger shoes to fill as I fleet up to take uh, Fred's job. Uh, And it's been I'm 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 a little nervous because many people have written, including Admirals Mullen and Natter, in proceedings that the EXO fleet-up model, you know, <laughs> might not be the greatest model. So as I get ready to do, be the EXO to fleet-up uh, to uh, editor-in-chief uh, of proceedings, uh, taking place uh, taking Fred's place, I'm, I'm a little nervous, excited, but a little nervous as well.
0: Well, you got a good team to support you, um, and uh, you and I wouldn't be here without Fred. Uh, Amen, you know, and and so uh, we'll also mention that we're going to have Fred on the podcast uh, tomorrow. Um, the show will be live on Facebook Live when we do it, but uh, it will be aired at our uh, probably a, a week uh, from now um, when we normally put it up on YouTube, uh, YouTube on <laughs> iTunes, iTunes and, and SoundCloud. So, uh, so um, what do we got in terms of any news from around the fleet, or uh, like you mentioned, our second block of interns are here um uh, no, if you would scan the audience uh our our crowd here is actually our production team. These are the folks um and maybe we'll have them introduce themselves uh, at the end of the show, kind of like uh Monday night football you know that'd be cool like you know name and year and hometown and yeah and,
1: and there's a giant tent set outside uh of beach hall down here on hospital Point, the naval academy class of twenty twenty two Oh it's arriving gosh. tomorrow. Tomorrow is induction day for uh, yeah. the, the new class of police. So what is that? I,
0: that's 40 Don't years? Don't do the math. It's 40 years for, for me.
1: 40 years from you. Yeah. Yeah, 35 from me or 36. Wow. Yeah, it's frightening. Wow, they're young. they Because
0: <laughs> I'm not old. No way. So, yeah, uh, we get this We get this thing between graduation and um and uh, I-Day, right, we have like a month off, really, where it's sort of dead. Right. Um, although we don't have it off because we had our interns, our Block 1 interns, and we we're doing other events. So no rest for the Naval Institute, which is the way we like it. Time tied and proceedings, wait for no man. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so we're, we're hitting it running. And uh, another fun thing for us is uh, the plebes will come to Beach Hall and get indoctrinated into what is the Naval Institute one platoon at a time. Uh, all through the summer, and we're we're really excited. We'll give him a Gatorade and a Cliff Bar, and that's usually what everybody remembers. Oh yeah, I got a Gatorade here, and I took a nap, um, and I, I took, took a nap, which is nap, great, which right? is good, right? Yeah, right. isn't that what you said, Gabby? That's what they, you remember. They yeah. said something
1: about Nimitz and Mahan, and, yeah. and it's all good. Yeah, yeah. No. Warden, right. what's
0: that? I don't know what that is. Besides the place I go, I hate uh, to drill and blah, blah blah. Other other
1: news that we have uh, is that um, I, I'm super excited to have selected. The next XO of Proceedings, my Deputy Editor-in-Chief, will be Captain, retired Bill Bray, U.S. Navy. Uh, Bill has been a, uh, a member of the Naval Institute for a very long time, an author in Proceedings. He was the Proceedings Author of the Year in 1998. He uh, wrote a series of articles uh, when he was the uh, Assistant intelligence uh, Strike Group Intelligence Officer on the Nimitz Carrier Battle Group back in 1998. Uh, detailing all the things that the uh, USS Nimitz Carrier Battle Group did as they went from fleet to fleet to fleet on an around-the-world deployment. Um, so he was Proceedings Author of the Year. He's written for Proceedings Today. He does our New and Notable Books column in Proceedings every month. He's extremely well-read. Well, read, well uh, he, he writes beautifully. Um, and he's been a, a you know, member and, and a champion of the Open Forum for you know, almost 30 years now. So Bill will join us at the end of August, which is super exciting for us and, and the team. Uh, and the other thing, personal good news is I, uh, my, my oldest daughter is getting married this weekend. Oh, congratulations. So, uh, which, is, which is great news. Wonderful guy, yeah. also named Bill. So we got lots of bills in the mix here. Ah, okay. And uh, so, so getting married down near Charlottesville this weekend. I get to walk her down the aisle. Ah, uh, good for you. I'm super excited. Yeah, so.
0: very cool. So we'll look for that action on uh, on on Facebook. Yeah,
1: I'll, I'll tell you right. all about it. Yeah, and,
0: uh, and we'll look to hear about it yeah. next uh, next week. So so, so yeah. on to our speaking guest, of Nimitz, uh, Nimitz right.
1: and uh, yeah right. Uh, so so it's a segue. Our,
0: it's what we call a segue in the business. Bill,
1: our guest this week uh, is Captain Jamie McGrath, who joins us from the Naval War College, uh, up in Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, his article in the Proceedings uh, June issue of Proceedings is um, called "Would Nimitz Win at Midway Today?" Uh, so page thirty-two, thirty-three is the opening spread and, uh, Jamie, welcome. And, uh, uh, how are things up in
2: Newport? Uh, it's good to be here. Uh, it's a beautiful day up here in Newport. Uh, we're having our three days of summer right now. Uh, so, uh, we're, we're really, uh, looking forward to spending some time working on curriculum, of course, of all things to do over the summer, so.
1: Cool. Uh, three days of, of summer in, I mean, New, Newport summer is a little longer than that, right? I mean, it's, it's nice weather up hey. there.
2: It depends on what you consider summer, but yeah it, it it's nice up here and uh, and uh, we uh, just finished just graduated the class uh, about a week ago. Uh, we had uh, Secretary Mattis up here as a guest speaker, and that was uh, an excellent opportunity for the students to hear what uh, what the secretary had to say and and uh, but otherwise, uh, things are going well up here in Newport. What did he have uh, to say I also just while I got you? like to add my personal congratulations to Bill Bray. Uh, we served together in the ComNavier staff, so uh, good to hear that uh, he's uh, making good for himself. And uh, also congratulations to you on the upcoming wedding. Uh, I did the same thing a month ago myself. Uh, it's a lot harder than one would think. So, <laughs>
1: All right, well, thank you. And uh, so tell us a little bit about your article, just cause sort of the 30,000-foot uh, view. Uh, you, you took advantage of the, the three-carrier strike group uh overlap in the western pacific a, a little over a year ago uh and you you built on that you said hey if nimitz had these three carrier strike groups together in 2018 rather than in 1942 would he have risked them and that, that that's sort of the 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 start the jumping off point for your article so talk talk about it a little bit right uh, as you
2: said uh it, it just the Seeing the three carriers uh, operating together and, and all the headlines about it, the, on my mind, immediately went to, to Midway, since that was a, uh, a gathering together of three carriers in, in almost the same way. It's the, they weren't necessarily operating together. It was what we had. We put them together, uh, kind of an ad hoc organization at the time. Um, and so I wanted to kind of see what the differences were between the two, um, and and what I kind of came out with is that uh, there's some, there were some significant risks that Nimitz took, obviously, um, and many of us know the story about the intelligence that he had, so there, um, you know, there were some mitigations that he was able to do knowing what was coming. Uh, I didn't focus on that aspect of the article. What I focused on was the aspect that uh, even though it was going to take a year until the next carrier, about 10 months until Essex arrived, in the Pacific. Um, there were a large number of capital ships, uh, at the time, uh, we thought there would be battleships, but by then we did recognize there'll be carriers that were already building back in the States and on the ways and, and and ready to replace any losses. And that's not the case today. And, and that's where my focus was is the fact that, uh, Nimitz had kind of a, a backup plan that if he had failed, it would have been bad, but, uh, but uh he would have been able to, the industrial might of the United States was prepared to recover and eventually bring him the fleet that he needed to, to go on to things like Leyte and 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 the like.
1: Yeah, interesting point. And it it's kind of uh, it's an interesting coincidence right now that your pieces in the June issue. Uh, I just edited a piece by Captain Wayne Hughes, the, uh, Hughes at the Naval Postgraduate School where he's talking about fleet composition, harkens back to a 2009 study they did at uh, at, at NPS, uh, sort of the high-low mix, how can you build uh, for current day a 600-ship Navy rather than a 355-ship Navy. Uh, but your point about uh, the risk that Nimitz took, calculated risk, uh, knowing that he had more carriers that were being built rapidly at the time in in the early you 1942-43 know, time frame and a lot more coming. So you point out in your article the average age of the ships uh, that, that you know, sailed together, the carriers that sailed together in late 2017, uh, and it was sort of a show of force to the Chinese and to the North Koreans, uh, and the average age of the ships that sailed together uh, headed towards combat in midway and, and it drastically different uh age right so 29 or something like that years uh current day aircraft carriers average age versus in uh, 1942 an average age of almost uh, just about three
0: years
2: uh yeah and uh just uh, how i got to that as a as an area of, of comparison um i uh I've been working a lot of uh, reading a lot about the uh, the build up of the navy in the 1930s starting with the uh, National Industrial Recovery Act uh and uh Roosevelt's executive order in uh, in 1933 uh, uh 6174 where he uh, he ordered the building of about 25 ships and then followed by the Vincent Trammell Act in 1934 um, which resulted in another 102 ships being built. Um, it's not as much that the ships were newer, although that is an issue. It's that we spent the decade ahead of World War II before the world had de- de- degraded to war as it as it ended up being. Um, rebuilding the, a modern Navy and uh, at and the same time building up an industrial base to – Build the Navy that we would need in the war, um, and the comparison is is I think more that we in the since the peace uh, dividend of the 1990s the end of the cold War uh, we haven't spent uh, concerted efforts to to build a navy we've kind of kept a a uh, a, a trickle charge as it were to borrow a, a submarine battery charging term of, of of naval construction to kind of keep a couple of shipyards. Uh, employed and, and available, but uh, not a concerted effort like there was in the 30s to to build a modern fleet of the day.
0: So what was the concerted effort driver? Was it uh, the world situation, the threat, uh, a desire to build the industrial base because of the revenue it would generate and how it would affect the economy? Why, why were we doing that in the
2: 30s? Well, uh, there was, there were two major driving efforts. Uh, or uh, issues. The first was in the 1920s, um, after the signing of the Washington Naval Treaty, and then the 1930 London Treaty. Um, the 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 administrations at the time were using treaties to kind of keep everyone else's navies down, and uh, and therefore uh, not have. The argument was they didn't have to build a navy. Uh, there was also some fiscal austerity that was that uh, came in at the end of the uh, Hoover administration with the uh, start of the Great Depression. So there was some deliberate effort to not build a navy in the 20s. Um, while we were not building a navy, the rest of the world's navies were building their navies, so we were at a significant disadvantage when the 1930 rolled around compared to Japan, Great Britain, France, and Italy, um, and relative to the um, allowable numbers from the Washington Naval Treaty system, so we were about forty percent below what we could have had in b- by the treaties. So that was one thing that was driving the need to kind of rebuild the navy. Uh, the other aspect, as you mentioned, um, Roosevelt being a kind of a fan of the navy from from way back when he was the Assistant Secretary of the Navy during World War One, um, he saw the fact that if you built naval vessels that There were a lot of industries that were involved in that. And uh, I read a statistic in my study that somewhere around 70 percent of the government funds that went into naval construction ended up going into the economy and into employment, which at the time in 1933 and 1934 was a major effort of the Roosevelt administration.
1: So, yeah, that's just a really good point on page 34. You know, you make the point building a fleet takes time. It takes time to build large, right. complex warships, and the fleet must be in service or under construction before it is needed. Uh, so are we right now in 2018 sort of anal- in an analogous position to 1928 to, you know, late 20s that we are taking, you know, sort of there's a hiatus from shipbuilding. We're starting to kind of ramp up a little bit or thinking about a larger Navy uh, but we haven't really started building it fast enough, and in the you know in the next decade we're going to need a bigger fleet.
2: Um, I I, well, I can't say in the future what we're going to need for a fleet, and that's I think part of what uh, what uh, Captain Hughes is talking about is how do you decide what that mix is. Um, what I'm what I'm trying to argue is that the the steps that were made in the '30s weren't words because we needed a specific fleet to do a specific thing against a specific adversary. Um, but it was an acknowledgement by several uh several entities, uh Representative Vincent in Congress, uh President Roosevelt, and uh the the naval leadership that uh that that they needed to be building something to keep the industrial base up, uh make the, make sure the industrial base knew how to build modern ships and, make, and they can also allowed for some experimentation. Uh, in this process, we were able to um, build some ships that ended up not being what we followed on with. Um, but you can't do that when the numbers are so low because you're 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 basically doing just replacements of of things that are aging out. So um, my my argument is that we we need to bring the industrial base back up in general, not necessarily because there's a specific threat in the future, but so we can be prepared to respond to a threat in the future. If you look at the, when we look at the Pacific, um, we're kind of in the position that Japan was in, 1930, in the 1930s and early 1940s. Japan's adversary, the United States, had a large industrial potential. It wasn't using it yet. Japan was at the extreme edge of their industrial potential. Our potential adversary today, being China, has a huge industrial potential that they're not using yet, whereas the American shipbuilding industry is at the extreme edge of its potential. So, um, if there were a conflict between the two nations, uh, I'm concerned that our ability to respond to a fleet that needs to be built would be challenged relative to the Chinese capability.
0: Well, you mentioned foresight that the country, I think, traditionally has never had uh, with that That's sort correct. of logic, right? You need to have a, a existential threat. To, to go uh, hog wild uh, in terms of budget size, in terms of uh, industrial capacity, in terms of the Hill having an appetite for this, right? And we see this even now um, with, you know, social programs getting uh, potentially cut um, and uh, other things that people say we need infrastructure, we need to balance the budget. Um, so, yes, we have a gigantic NDAA this year, you know, bigger than previous years at about $724 billion. Yes, the, uh, the commander in chief has been talking about how everything's, uh, you know, we're back and things are going to be great and best ever. And uh, you have CNO that is concerned um, with the capacity to build ships uh, in, in our industrial base. Um, and when you talk about, you know, if you listen to the president talk, he's like, we already have 355 ships, right? And we already have F 35s and they're great and everything's great and we have a space force. And so I think the public tends to believe that, oh, the military's fixed because I heard it. You know, uh, when I was watching Fox News and when you look at how long it's going to take to make these ships and reach 355, you know, that's 2050. You know, so what are the threats we're going to face between now and 2050? You know, is because we we now are talking about no more asymmetric threat. We're talking about peer threats. Um, And I think you just described it perfectly with China has this, you know, headroom in their capacity and we're already You know, at or past it, uh, which is, uh, you know, we like to mention, for instance, LCS versus what kind of ships am I talking about? The Chinese Hubei's. Yeah, the Hubei's, right? Uh,
1: uh, I I had an email exchange with Wayne Hughes uh, just this morning about this and, uh, you know, the fact that uh, Admiral Sabrowski, who was the president of NPS and then the the president of the War College, and he, he, he came up with this idea called the Street Fighter class of ships back in the early 2000s, where he said we should be building a large number of these very fast, agile, lethal, modular. small, lieutenant-commanded yeah. ships, right, for the U.S. Navy to operate in the littorals. Uh, and then, you know, we have LCS now. It's $450 million a copy. It doesn't have an offensive uh, anti-ship cruise missile on it. But the Chinese have 80, 80-something Hobei-class <clears> Uh, PTGs, right, which have eight anti-ship cruise missiles. Each
0: built for half a eight, billion dollars. Or, each I mean, what, built let, for $50 a, million dollars yeah, a copy, yeah.
1: right? And they have 80 of them. And and they've had 80 of them right. for what, about six or seven years now. So, uh, yeah, they built Street Fighter. They they read the studies that the Naval War College and postgraduate school produced back in the early 2000s. And they built it. And so you want
0: to talk peer to peer in the literals, I, I would say on paper, we're sucking. Yeah, right. uh, it's South China right. Sea. We're gonna put we're gonna put D which are billion plus dollar
1: assets, up against Hobei class uh fifty million dollar assets that are gonna come screaming out at fifty knots, launch anti ship cruise missiles and then scream back into the brown water, and we've got billion dollar assets out there that'll be shooting uh
0: you know uh multi million dollar things. Multi million <laughs> dollar
1: SM two, three sixes uh yeah right it, it, you know so the the Chinese went to school on what we were writing twenty years ago.
2: Right and 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 I'm uh now just, just to to be clear I mean I I've, I've read a lot of uh of Captain Hughes's, uh stuff and and I'm and, and I'm I have uh, thoughts and opinions on that whole relationship but the the it's, article, it's okay
0: for uh, you to disagree you with I'm
2: kind of agnostic we authorize
0: blue on blue, the, on blue the, here at the, the podcast.
2: Type of um, I think the the general idea isn't uh, isn't that we need to build. Uh, you know, I I'm, I'm not arguing that we need to build a specific ship. And I think the challenge is, is and and, and is, is to have the capacity to build whatever the right ship is to, to do the job. You hit on something earlier that, that we talk about quite frequently up uh, up on the fourth deck at the the Naval War College in the Joint Military Operations Department, and that is the idea of. Um, the impetus for large spending on naval construction, which is kind of what I'm advocating here, in a, in a liberal democracy without an existential threat. Um, in the 30s, the existential, existential threat was the Depression. That was a useful uh, the tool that the Navy kind of benefited from. Um, in the 80s, the, uh, during the Reagan buildup to the 600-ship Navy, the existential threat was the evil empire of the Soviet Union, uh, and then that went away. And uh, as as I mentioned, the, we, the, the, the shipbuilding was cut way back. Shipbuilding funding was cut way back because we didn't have that threat anymore. Um, that's a challenge today, and the, demonstrating the existential existential threat to uh, the the public the public and getting the funding for something as large as a naval construction program. Uh, I don't have all the answers to that, uh, but I recognize that's a challenge and that's a problem. And it's one of those things that if you don't do it, you can't go back and do it when that existential threat pops up, and so that's a, that's a challenge that we that we face in in determining how we move forward with this. So on Monday
1: at uh, the National Press Club, I went to uh, an event that uh, John Lehman, former Secretary of the Navy, who was SECNAV when I was a junior officer, and Ward was a junior officer uh, in the '80s. Uh, he helped uh, spur the uh, development of the, the maritime strategy, which took US Navy, the U.S. Navy up to the peripherals of the Soviet threat, the Soviet Empire, mm-hmm. uh, Vesta Fjord and up off of uh, Kamchatka Peninsula in the northern Pacific, uh, the Aleutian Islands, etc. Uh, and uh, Lehman was great. He was a great speaker on Monday, and he gave a lot of credit to some of the people who helped develop that strategy and uh formulate tactics and figure out ways to get carrier strike groups up above the GIUK gap 50 degrees north up in you know off the coast of Norway without the 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 Soviets uh, you know knowing where they were uh and he mentioned you know working with and around uh, Henry Kissinger uh and Kissinger's you know claim that uh, history doesn't always repeat itself but it certainly rhymes and you know your your point here that in the 1920s, the loss of private shipyards and underemployment of navy yards resulted in the loss of critical skilled workers. You know, so we had this industrial capacity problem that uh, that the navy and the president in the 1930s, in the in the midst of the depression, you know, addressed right. So there was a a, a desire to build ships to to keep that industrial capacity present in the United States. Uh, to keep the technical skills there so that we could build a Navy when we needed it or before we needed it, right? Uh, just an right. I- interesting echo of uh, sort of the, you know, hearing Lehman talk the other day about the, the 80s and some of the, you know, the, the requirements that might be coming back now uh, as we face peer adversaries, China uh, and Russia.
2: So- yeah, I agree. And um, I think going back to that uh, needing an impetus for change uh, thing, um, that was, as as you pointed out, was the problem in the 20s with the private shipyards closing, resulting in the degradation of the workforce. Um, Congressman Vinson um, was pretty strident about that, even in the 20s. But there was no traction within the administration to expand budgets and spend lots of money to do those sorts of things. It was the Great Depression where we had a much broader unemployment problem that Vincent was able to kind of work with Roosevelt and 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 help Roosevelt recognize that that naval construction resulted in employment writ large and then the side benefit was it brought back those skilled laborers in the shipyard industry that would not go on to serve us really well. Uh, a decade later, when World War II started, um, we have the same problem today, and we have people who are, who are who clearly recognize this. I mean, if you listen to um, the the shipyard presidents, they're talking about their the aging out of their workforce. Um, they don't have people joining their apprenticeship programs, and that an even bro- broader problem is the in the nineties when they weren't bringing apprentices in. At, they were bringing apprentices in at even lower numbers than they are now. That means that they don't have the journeymen now that you would expect to have 20 years later that will become the masters. So even they, even when they bring in apprentice programs, and like Newport News has got a uh, shipbuilding, it's got an apprentice program that's really recruiting hard, but now they've got master uh, shipbuilders and master carpenters and electricians and all the various shipbuilding rates um that are getting ready to retire because they're at that age and there's no journeyman to step up into that master role. We have apprentices and we have masters, but the big gap is actually in the journeyman role. And that's something we can't fix overnight either.
1: So, Jamie, you're a professor of joint military operations at the Naval War College. Uh, is this uh, w- Was this article uh, you know, was it born out of discussions that you were having with colleagues, is looking into the industrial capacity to build a Navy? Is that part of uh, something that's, that's uh, you know, f- uh, foremost in your thinking up there, or is this just a, a topic that have, was of great interest to you?
2: Um, I, I recently completed a, a, a Master's in Military History, and my Master's uh, dissertation, thesis, paper, whatever you want to call it this month, um, was on the the 1920s and 30s uh, decline and rebuilding of the Navy so I was already kind of in that mindset and thinking um, when this uh, when these headlines about the three um, carriers came out so it, it it sparked more from my studies from that um, I mean we've discussed it a lot up, up up on the up in the fourth deck of the war college here but um, Not necessarily something we're focused in in joint military operations because we primarily deal with the ships that we have. But we do certainly talk a lot about the the risks that Nimitz was able to take. Um, Another common discussion we have up there is if you look at uh, going forward another couple of months to August of 1942 and the decisions that Admiral King made to go ahead with an offensive in Guadalcanal, even though that we even though we weren't prepared, even though we had already committed to a Europe first, um, and Operation Shoestring, as it became to be called, was that, but King was taking some calculated risks, again, knowing that he had all these ships coming off the ways here very soon, and when you had ships like Fletcher and uh, Washington and Alabama showing up, the tide started to turn in our direction, um, that if we had waited... Um, you know, and allowed the Japanese to build up the Guadalcanal airfield and the like we might have lost that opportunity so um those those kinds of discussions we have uh, up on the up on the fourth deck there about how the the fleet composition impacts operations, but we aren't spending a lot of time talking about whether or not we should build an industrial cat industrial uh, uh base that's that's more my my thoughts
1: yeah, interesting points on page thirty six uh, you have a paragraph that starts off with, Adversaries can see the anemic U.S. shipbuilding capacity and become encouraged in their own efforts. As noted in the CNOs, a design for maritime uh, maintaining maritime superiority, the U.S. faces renewed competition at sea as Russia and China both have advanced their military capabilities to act as global powers. And then you go on to talk about, Uh, Chinese building modern warships possess the capacity to expand production rates rapidly in times of crisis. Russia, too, is taking strides to rebuild its naval forces. In 2017, Russia had 53 naval vessels of all types under construction, 19 percent more than currently in the United States. Now, I know the Russian ships are a lot of those are small sort of light frigates and uh, patrol, uh, you know, guided missile patrol craft, that sort of thing. But that's a lot of ships to be built.
2: It is. And, and you point out one of the, the challenges with doing kind of some of the comparisons I was doing here is, is not all ships are created equal, obviously. Um, but, uh, but, you know, when you build a modern hull, you put the most modern things on it. Uh, one of the comments I received after writing this article was, uh, was a discussion about, um, the building ships that can be modernized more effectively. And, and I know that, uh, the current uh, N9 uh, and N96, uh, OpNav N96 uh, mindset is of this family of surface combatants. They're really moving towards building ships with a, a capacity to be more modernized or to be modernized more readily um, uh, because of, you know, modularity and the various things that we can do with micro, micro, micro and I'm not going to get that word out right. Um, <laughs> small electronics. Um, so, Anyway, I know that, that that thinking is there um, and, 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 it, so, and the people who are in charge of those things are thinking about those things. The challenge that I've seen so far is all the right words are being said. Um, the CNO uh, it, you know when he put out the, the shipbuilding plan for 2019, I have, there's some obviously some faults with that and it doesn't get to the numbers uh, as rapidly as Congress directed. Uh, I understand that may be being addressed in the FY20 shipbuilding plan, but I've, we, I haven't seen that yet. Um, but there's, the right words are being said, the right words are being said by N96 about the types of mix of ships and what you do to modernize and the like, but there's a lag, and, and that's part of my argument, is that shipbuilding will always lag. It's, it's a lagging function. If, if, you are, if you're forced to use a fleet, you can't expend the fleet and then go back and build a new one. Whether that's building a whole bunch of legacy early Burke hulls or building the next greatest thing, you got to be building.
0: Yeah,
1: and I think the final uh, sentence of your article is just wraps that up very, very well. It says, uh, without ships in production and a viable shipbuilding industry, the inability to replace combat losses significantly increases the strategic risk of committing the fleet to battle. So uh, that idea of risk is coming up over and over again in in proceedings articles month after month after month. Admiral Swift brought it up in his uh, his uh, series of articles that he wrote um, February, March, and then in, in May. Uh, you bring it up very nicely in your piece. Uh, other authors are, are also bringing up this idea of risk and where are we putting, are we putting the risk in the right place? Are we taking risk in the mm-hmm. right ways? Admiral Mullen even mentioned it when he was on the podcast in his uh, article about, you know, sort of re-wickering the XOCO or the, the, the uh, surface warfare uh, career path. Um, he mentioned risk uh, prominently in the conversation with Ward and me. Uh, so it's a really interesting topic and one that I'm sure will continue to play out in the, in the pages of proceedings. Uh, before we let you go, I just wanted to ask, uh, you know, tell us a, a couple of really great things that are happening up in Newport, your your perspective at the, at the War College in, in terms of uh, curriculum, in terms of war games that are going on up there, in terms of, you know, other other events happening at the War College.
2: Okay, well, I'll, uh, I'll stick with, uh, with what I'm most comfortable with. I know uh, in the joint military operations world, we are really excited about um, – the uh, the adjustments that we've made over the last several years to the to the intermediate level course the uh, the o four o three o four is coming through um, really um, addressing navalization of joint efforts so how the navy fits into the joint fight and understanding the the proper use of naval forces in planning and in an execution of, of joint efforts, and not the least of which we're spending a lot of time uh, and a lot of effort educating our non-Naval officers, those joint officers that are in our course, on how navies fit into the fight and how the joint force is a necessary element of achieving sea control and doing what Navies do. Uh, the fact that we can't do anything alone these days uh, we we need the joint force to to get that done. That's not probably the biggest thing I, I think is going on in our curriculum up here. Um, we're just uh, I'm, I'm we said we just graduated a class. We're spending the summer working on our curriculum, and we're looking forward to having the students roll roll in rolling here back in uh, second week of August. And
1: is the the new defense guidance the national defense uh, stra- military strategy uh, with the very explicit mention of peer competitors of. Uh, China and Russia—is that changing the curriculum up there at work at uh, Newport at all?
2: No, actually, I think it reinforces our curriculum. Uh, we spend a lot of time looking at historical examples, and we have to go back quite a ways—World uh, War II, uh, Falklands, maybe—to get uh, a, a true idea of uh, peer-on-peer naval combat, um, and that's what we've been doing here for quite a while. Actually, really, since. Uh, admiral uh, turner was the president uh, back in the in the 70s um the and, and i think that that re-emphasis on peer on peer just just reemphasizes our that we're that we're looking at the right stuff at how do you take a fleet and fight another fleet to do what navies do which is gain and maintain sea control so we can exploit it to achieve national objectives
0: good stuff the author is captain james mcgrath He's up at the Naval War College, as uh, Bill mentioned. We should also mention and remind our listeners that the relationship between the Naval Institute and the Naval War College is super tight because Naval Institute member number four is Stephen B. Luce, who wrote an article in an early issue of the proceedings of the Naval Institute called War Schools that created the legislation that built the Naval War College, and Stephen B. Luce was the first president. So we always like it when we have our cousins from the Naval War College on the show or contribute to proceedings. So great stuff. And we've also had
1: uh, Captain Sam Tangredi, U.S. Navy retired, who wrote, has written about 40 articles in proceedings over the years and he's up at the, the faculty of the War College uh, in the I think it's the Institute for Future Warfare Studies. Uh, and Sam is, uh, you know, sort of professor emeritus of both places of the Naval Institute and the Naval War College. So uh jamie thanks for joining us today it was great talking to you thanks for writing for proceedings and your your article is just a, a terrific piece uh you know our staff enjoyed reading it the board liked it and uh our readership from from online metrics uh, also is enjoying the article so thanks very much
2: well thanks a lot it was my first one and i met this 40 yet like stand, but hopefully i'll get there eventually
0: <laughs> keep trying awesome okay take care thanks thanks All right. Before we say goodbye, here, no, give me the phone. Um, We'd like to get our this class of interns to come, uh, you know, say hello to the audience. Um, Just tell us who you are, Um, and if you guys would just like one at a time, either go to either one of the microphones. Let let them cycle through this one. Okay, cycle through that one. Um, Just name hometown and what you want to do during the time uh, you're here as an intern. Um, So, for so the audience knows this group is our second group of interns, um, and they are a content team, as well as uh, being thrown in the deep end of the Naval Institute. They'll go to the Pentagon and see what the uh, the Naval Institute Press does. I'm sorry, the Naval Institute News team does. Um, we'll take them uh, a, another place. I'm not sure where we're going to go uh, uh, as our other field trip. They're working on short form projects, which is digital content for the blogs, and then a long form project, which uh, could eventually wind up in Proceedings magazine. So. Um, Go up to the microphone and say, uh, say hello to the folks. Just introduce yourself, and uh, w- what, do you, what do you think you're going to do while you're here? Hi, uh, I'm Seth King. I'm Get really close, Seth. All
1: right. I'm Seth King. I'm from Pasco, Washington. And while I'm here, I'm hoping to develop professional communication skills and knowledge about the naval profession that will be useful to me throughout my
0: career. Fantastic. Okay, Seth's uh, second class, which is uh, awesome. All right, we've got to tighten up the timeline here. Get queued up. All right, Jeffrey, say hello.
2: I'm Midshipman, First Class Jeffrey Kramer uh, from San Diego, California. I have a piece on the history blog. Go check it out. It's about the mascot of the Marine Corps. I'm hoping to just take in a lot of knowledge and hear a lot of sea stories this block.
0: Oh, you'll definitely hear a lot of sea stories, especially when Bill and I are hanging out. So Jeffrey has hit the ground running. In fact, I will tell you, this block has hit the ground running with content that's already live today. It's fantastic. I'm Noah Johnston from Louisville, Kentucky. And while I'm here, I want to be able to communicate more efficiently with everyone around me. Fantastic. Noah's sea bag is adrift, so if you see it out there, um, please return it to Annapolis.
2: <laughs> Hi, I'm midshipman second class Amherst Lopez uh, from McAllen, Texas. I'm um, looking to just learn a lot, meet some good people, and look into the psychology of the naval strategic planning process.
0: Fantastic. Good stuff, Amaris.
2: Thank
0: you. Hi, I'm Gabby Shine. I'm a midshipman second class. I'm from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and I just am r- really interested in seeing, uh, getting insight into the publishing process and just learning more about the Navy and military perspectives. Fantastic. In fact, as soon as we get done with this, I'm going to uh, get Gabby's, one of Gabby's posts live, so take a look at that.
1: Hello everybody, I'm Midshipman second class Taylor Sparks. I'm from Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I just enjoy research and hanging around the Naval Institute. There's lots of awesome people here, so I'm excited to just write some and grow as a professional.
0: Awesome. Yeah, Taylor does like hanging out here. Uh, She was here all last academic year. um, And uh, actually, I I can say that a lot of this internship is, uh, is because of her enthusiasm. We hope to keep the relationship going and not just be uh, a summertime thing we want mids to hang out here all the time and feel at home so second block six folks they're already really doing well and uh, and look for their content so as always follow us on twitter like us on facebook check us out on instagram we're going to be like with our facebook live um yeah i forgot about the phone it's been sitting on the guy. but uh, uh we're doing facebook you know we got Facebook live of the show. Other things happening, um, so check us out through all of the social media. Uh, yeah, much uh, of the much
1: of the content that the mids are generating is on the blogs. It's blog.usni.org and the and history blog. A lot of it's on our history blog, blog, blog as well. Too. Yep. Both
0: are accessible through. Well, you'll see the posts on our social channels, but also through the homepage at usni.org. Um, and it's both on, as you said, Bill, usni blog as well as the history blog.
1: Yep. So there, were, that wraps up our podcast for this week. Uh, next week, we'll have uh, Fred Rainbow pre-recorded tomorrow, but next week we'll have him on the the podcast. The long time editor be on Facebook Live and Live Facebook Live tomorrow. Tomorrow, right? So and right, and um, what time are we doing that? We're going to do that at ten thirty. 10 o'clock. Ten uh, thirty. Ten thirty
0: Eastern. Look for us on Facebook uh, for a conversation with Fred Rainbow. This Is History. Uh, don't miss it. It's going to be great. But if you miss that, as Bill said, that'll be our podcast for next Wednesday. Yeah, And don't forget, Victory Begins at the Naval Institute. Thanks, everybody.